Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, and goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle is uh, its tent and its covering, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases. The ark with its poles, the mercy seat and the veil of the screen. The table with its poles and all its utensils and the bread of the presence. The lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps and the oil for the light and the altar of the incense with its poles and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the door at the door of the tabernacle. The altar of burnt offering uh, with its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils and the basin and its stand. The hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases and the screen of the gate of the court. The pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords and finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place. The holy garments for Aaron and the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses and they came everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for, um, for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ramskin or goatskin brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it to the Lord's um, brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood for any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman, woman spun uh, with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skills spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and spices and oil for the light, and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded uh, by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. That's Exodus 40, 16 to 35. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. 
In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above, uh, above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil, and burnt fragrant incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he erected the court round the tabernacle and the altar, and set up a screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the, the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Uh, please use this passage today to, to stir our hearts to love and serve you more. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name's Giles. I'm one of the, the team here at Christ Church. Um, and this morning, I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to bringing to you uh, six more chapters of Exodus. Um, but I want to start by asking you a question. Um, have you ever met someone royal? Uh, perhaps you've, you've been in, in that crowd when Kate and William you know, stopped to say hello to people. Or, or maybe you've been to the palace to, uh, to receive an award. Anyone? No, no one owning up. Or maybe, maybe someone royal has visited you. Uh, the next picture, we um, see Princess Anne coming to visit my school. To open a new building. It's a long time ago. So you might have to guess. I'm not in the photo, so you don't need to guess which one is me. Um, it was very exciting for us, although, to be honest, she, she does look a little bit bored. Um, but I, I was very excited. I was, I was 11, and I'd been uh, chosen to demonstrate to her a computer game that I had written um, on a BBC Model B. 
That's gonna. That's that's so old. Um, so she wasn't just coming to our school. She was. She was coming to our classroom. She. She'd be talking to me. Anyway, today's passage is all about someone royal coming to his people. Not, not a British royal making a brief visit, but the king of the universe, God himself, coming to make his home among his people. Which um, is something we saw when Matt preached a few weeks ago on uh, chapters 25 to 31. So if we recap on the slide with 25 to 31, do you remember uh, those, those long, detailed instructions for the tabernacle, the ark, the priestly garments? And we saw how, how God can't dial down his holiness. Everything about the layout and material and detail shows us God's holiness. But they also show us that sin can be dealt with, that the mercy seat of, of the ark is the, the focus of sacrifice and atonement, pointing us towards Jesus, who, who deals with our, our sin fully and finally. So there is a way home. We're, we're not just saved from sin, but for relationship. And the tabernacle is, is a picture of a new start, a new creation, a new relationship with God, right at the heart of his people. Let me read um, from 25 verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. And then, right at the end of the book, what we've just read, chapter 40 verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God is with his people. So now we move on to uh, 25 to 40, from 25 through to 40. So 25 to 31 were the, were the instructions for the, for the sanctuary. 35 to 40 is the construction of that sanctuary, making the tabernacle, the ark, the priestly garments, doing exactly what God told them to do. So uh, back in, in chapter 25, verse 9, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. And then the next six chapters uh, give the details. And then chapters 35 to 40 is, is almost word-for-word word repetition. Let's um, compare the first couple of verses about the Ark of the Covenant. So again, back in, in 25, uh, Verses 10 and 11, they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. And let's skip ahead to chapter 37 on page 92, verses 1 and 2. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half of its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold around it. And that's how the whole of chapters 35 to 40 go, with a few key differences. It recapitulates everything that was in chapters 25 to 31. So if some of you are feeling a bit nervous about another sermon covering six or seven chapters on furniture, clothing, and curtains, let me reassure you, we are not just going to look at 35 to 40. We're going to take in the whole sweep 
of 25 to 40. And my first heading on, on the slide is majesty. Majesty. Let's, let's see from this huge chunk just how overwhelmingly majestic God is and how that should shape our response to him. Now, we've been studying Exodus here at Christchurch since January, and I wonder how much you remember, or maybe um, you're new to the church and you missed um, most of those sermons. But maybe you know some of the stories from Exodus, the, the baby in the bulrushes, the, the burning bush, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the Ten Commandments. Those are the stories most of us can remember. Those are what uh, these films focus on. Now, I don't know which of those three is your favorite Exodus film. Um, Ten Commandments, Prince of Egypt, Gods and Kings. See, those three films all cover all those stories I've just mentioned. And not one of them covers the tabernacle or the Ark of the Covenant. Not one. Let's skip to the next slide. Just a reminder, that's chapters 25 to 40 is all about the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the priestly garments. Well over a third of the book of Exodus. Now, when we read the gospel accounts in the New Testament, we see a similar huge chunk about the death and resurrection of Jesus. You have about a third of Matthew, about a quarter of Luke, about half of John. And, and it's so clear, isn't it, when you read that, you say, this is the thing that the gospel writer wants us to understand is what it's all about, what it's all leading up to. You can't fail to read the gospels and, and not see that the focus is on the cross and the crucial importance of Jesus' death for us. But here in Exodus, we can so easily... Just fall into thinking this huge chunk at the end is, is just a, a bit of a boring afterthought. As though Moses would say, well, there's some really good bits early on that um, they can make some films of in a few thousand years' time, but frankly, I got a bit lost after chapter 24. Well, of course not. This huge section of Exodus is what it's all about. It's what everything has been leading towards. It's, it's about God himself coming to be with his people. So let's not be daunted or, or bored by chapters 25 to 40. Let's be excited about them. It's what everything's been leading towards. It's what Moses wants us to focus on. So, so what makes these chapters so long? Well, partly I think it is, it's the detail and the extravagance and partly the, the repetition of it all. See, Moses could have, have just told us, um, uh, God told me to build a tabernacle, I obeyed and built it, and God lived among his people. One sentence. That would have been the crucial finale of the book. That would be the point of God rescuing his people from Egypt. But there's all this detail, all this extravagance again and again. So look at uh, page 94. Um, Verses 1 to 5 of chapter 39, and the priestly garments from, from the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. 
They made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the ephod of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. And they hammered out gold leaf and he cut it into threads to work into the blue and purple and the scarlet yarns and into the fine twined linen in skilled design. They made for the ephod attaching shoulder pieces joined to it at its two edges and the skillfully woven band on it was of one piece with it and made like it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, as the Lord had commanded Moses. How many times did Moses need to tell us about the gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and the finely twisted linen? We get this throughout these chapters, this repetition about the beauty and value of all these materials and the exquisite skill that it's required to to make it all, the vast quantities The outrageous cost of it in gold and silver. What is it teaching us? The majesty of God. The the sheer overwhelming godness of God. His immense, his, his immeasurable beauty and worth and importance. His majesty. And for every step in this process... All that wealth of detail is given twice. First the instructions, 25 to 31, and then in obeying those instructions to the letter in 35 to 40. Because throughout the work is done, as um, in, in 36 verse 1, in accordance with all that the Lord had commanded. In, in the passage that Kate read in chapter 40, just those few verses describing the, the, the final completion of the tabernacle, seven times we're told that the work was done as the Lord had commanded Moses. So what's that teaching us? That we are to respond to God's majesty in awe-filled obedience in reverent worship that obeys him to the letter, that dwells on him in every detail. There is is deliberate solemnity and reverence about the length and detail of all this. It's It's not a quick, yep, I'm on it. It's a protracted, drawn out meditation on God's majesty and wonder, and in response of his people's obedience and worship. When um, Princess Anne came to my school, we pulled out all the stops because she was royal and the the place was cleaned and tidied like never before. We're all on our best behavior. I I had to wear a suit and and say, your royal highness and ma'am as in jam. God is so much more majestic than Princess Anne, than any human royalty. And our honor and respect for human leaders pales beside the worship that we owe to God. Our God is king of the universe. And the message of Exodus is that he's come to his people. And God's people need to recognize who he is and worship him. In, in total, all of life, reverent obedience. But what about us now? Well, what was true for the Israelites then is so much more true for God's people today. We're, we're not in the desert. 
with a tabernacle, an ark, and, and priestly garments. We're not in Jerusalem where the temple replaced the tabernacle. We don't need to go to a physical tabernacle or temple to worship. There's no need for those sacrifices year after year in the temple because Jesus has fulfilled all that. Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel. He became human. He tabernacled among us, it says in John 1, or he dwelt among us. And in John's next chapter, Jesus describes his body as a temple that would be destroyed, but raised again in three days. Jesus is the fulfillment of of all that we're reading in Exodus 25 to 40 about the tabernacle. In, In Jesus is the awesome, beautiful majesty of God come to earth. He's the one that we must recognize as our ruler, whom whom we must worship and obey. He is our God. But even more than that, let me read a couple of verses from from 1 Corinthians. um, Chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. Do you not know that you, plural, are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. See, we see, we see Jesus, we see God perfectly in Jesus, the new temple. And by his spirit, God is with us today among us, his people. So this building is is not a new tabernacle or temple. This table is not uh, a new altar. Matt or Luke's occasional dog collars are not the new priestly garments. No, the temple is us. It's as church. It's as God's people, as, as those who know and follow Jesus. That's what Paul says is the temple. When two or three of us meet together in his name, that's where Jesus is. Isn't that astonishing? When we gather together, God's spirit dwells among us. God's temple is holy, and we are that temple. You see, the length and the detail and the repetition of Exodus 25 to 40 stress the majesty of God. And the amazing privilege of him being there with his people in the desert. And the people recognized the majesty of God and worshipped and obeyed him. That awesome majesty is with us right now. He's with us, with the people of Christ Church Bromley. Do we recognize that we together are God's holy temple, that his majesty is here among us. When we come together for Sunday service or midweek groups, do we, do we fall before God in, in worship, committing to serve him in reverent obedience? Or do we rock up for a, for a quick sing-song, hear a nice talk, and have a chat over coffee before cracking on with real life? Do we we treat each other with the same reverence that the Israelites treated the tabernacle? Do we love one another and serve one another in the way they lovingly, carefully, painstakingly built 
and cared for that tabernacle. God is, is among us. Let's worship him and treat each other with the holiness that requires. But it gets even more personal in 1 Corinthians 6. And Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So God's spirit is with us as, as we meet together. And he's within each of us who follow Jesus. Our bodies are not just lumps of meat that don't matter much. Uh, they're temples of the Holy Spirit. God is, is dwelling here. So it matters what we do with our bodies. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is talking about how we use our bodies sexually. Um, it means not sleeping around. It, it means um, obeying God's commands about sex. And we've been thinking about what that means in the last few weeks, um, that sex is for lifelong, monogamous, heterosexual marriage. But if, if, if we need more encouragement to help us live holy lives, Paul tells us to remember that God dwells in my body. It matters because God is here. To treat your body with all holiness and respect as the Israelites treated the tabernacle or the temple. Because so often we behave as though God isn't watching. When Princess Anne was talking to me about my computer game, I was, I was on my absolutely best behavior. When she left the room, we all sort of breathed a sigh of relief and, and probably made a few jokes about her. But God's not like that. Remember, God is, is, is here. His majesty. Right here, among us and in each of us. Always. Let's behave accordingly. Glorify God in your body. God's majesty demands our reverent, our obedient worship. But there's something else we learn um, from 25 to 40, and that's my second heading. Mercy. Mercy. Let's see just how overwhelmingly merciful God is and how that should shape our response to him. Um, royalty demands obedience and respect. Uh, at the coronation, we are asked to swear that I will pay true allegiance to your majesty. And it's the same at citizenship ceremonies. But we can do that through gritted teeth. Uh, we might do it because we have to, but our hearts aren't in it. I was duly respectful to Princess Anne. Um, I, I showed her my game that I had been perfecting for weeks. I was proud to be representing my class, and she looked down her nose at it, and she said, well, I suppose it's all right for children. And I was absolutely <laughs> gutted. Um... I, I carried on politely with the yes, ma'am, and, and so on, keeping my hands out of my pockets. But inside, inside I was crying. And it's obviously scarred me for life. <laughs> my deference to her was grudging. I went through all the motions of respect, uh, 
for royalty, but my heart wasn't in it. But God's majesty is not like that. His people are not to obey him grudgingly, but joyfully. And the reason Exodus gives us is because God is merciful. His grace is abundant. His people's gratitude is overflowing. So let's go back um, to that outline of of 25 to 40. Um, We have the instructions, and then we have the construction, the whole thing, preparing that dwelling place for God himself among his people. But the smart among you may have noticed that I've missed out, 32 to 34, the story of the golden calf, of of rebellion against God, of judgment, and, and of God's mercy in response to Moses' prayers, saving his people and renewing his promises to them. Now, if Moses had missed those chapters out, the end of 31 would, um, would flow very nicely into the beginning of 35. So if I, if I read verse 18, the last verse of 31, and, and then the first verse of 35, and he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the Testament, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. And we'd have a wonderful block of 11 chapters, 25 to 40, showing us the majesty and holiness of God and his tabernacle and the wonder of him coming to his people. And and we'd recognize our need to worship and serve this awesome God who's come to his people. So why 32 to 34? Wasn't their failure a bit embarrassing? Could he, could he just, just leave it out and forget it happened? Let's go to our next slide. Um, no, he couldn't do that because it happened. But because it shows us so much more about who God is and how we are to respond to him. God is a God of majesty and of mercy. So putting chapters 32 and 34 in the middle of the tabernacle story makes it absolutely clear that the people deserved none of this privilege. That they're inherently, utterly unholy and only God can restore them and make them holy. We've seen repeatedly how God is holy, but his people are not that's what the whole design of the tabernacle reminds us of, you know, through the outer court to the holy place to the holy of holies, from bronze to gold. There's the sacrifices needed before the priests can serve, regular offerings to sanctify the place where God meets unholy people. And where God makes them holy, where he sanctifies them. So back in uh, Chapter 31, verse 13, God said, You shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. God does the work. God sanctifies his people. And that's what, we, that's what we're seeing in chapters 32 to 34. If we're in any doubt about all this, you're tempted to think from, verse, from chapters 25 to 31 that the Israelites somehow deserved their special relationship with God that they'd earned their opportunity to build a home for him by by doing all this work so obediently, that is blown out of the water by chapter 32. They are as sinful as the Egyptians. They deserve destruction, but God is 
utterly merciful and restores them. So everything they have is from the abundant grace and mercy of a God who loves them simply because he loves them. Their God is overflowing with generosity. And so what's their response? Well, not just the obedience that they owe to the ruler of the universe, but overflowing gratitude, heartfelt, joyful, loving thankfulness to the God who has saved them. So their obedience flows from both duty and gratitude. Let's go back to chapter 35 that we read initially, page 90. How the people gave so generously and willingly. Verse 5, whoever is of a generous heart. Verse 21, those whose hearts were stirred, their spirits moved. This is joyful, grateful giving to the God who made them holy. And they're so generous, they bring so much that the craftsman can't cope with it all. Look at, look at next chapter, 36, verses 5 to 7, page 91. The people bring uh, much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Wow. Imagine if Tom Feather were to stand up and tell us to stop giving because we can't cope with all the money that's flowing into Christchurch. Imagine if Matt were to tell us um, that we can't cope with all the people offering to, to serve the church in all those areas we might need help. In youth or children's work, in, in maintenance, in, in pastoral care. Imagine if we were overflowing in generosity with our time and our money like the Israelites. And they were responding rightly to God's overflowing mercy and generosity to them. And how much more is that true for us now that we know Jesus? Uh, let, me, let me read again chapter 40, verse 34 and 35. On page 96, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses wasn't able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So in God's love and mercy, he, he came to be among his people there in the tabernacle. God's glory filled the tabernacle. But Moses couldn't enter. God's there, but there's still a barrier between him and his people. There's still a curtain separating them. Fast forward to Mark 15 as Jesus died. He uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the barrier is ripped apart. As Hebrews 10 says, Jesus has, has opened a new and living way for us to be with God, to, to enter the, the holy places, to draw near to our Heavenly Father. God is with us by his Spirit. There's no barrier between us and our loving Father. So let's consider how we can stir one another up to love and good works, says the writer to the Hebrews, in, in loving, grateful response to God's amazing mercy to us. So let's not give and, and serve 
grudgingly because we think we should. We should. But let's not do it just because we think we should. Let's give and serve willingly and joyfully because we can. Because God has made us holy and he's made us his people. If we're, if we're not giving and serving, let's consider how we might be able to. Just like the Israelites, it's going to be different for everyone. They didn't all bring acacia wood and ramskins. They weren't all spinners of yarn or, or, or goldsmiths. We're not all spectrum leaders or caretakers. We don't all have much money. So let's give what we can and serve where we can. And let's do it gladly as, as our hearts are stirred and our spirits moved to enjoy the privilege of serving God and his people in this way. Let's enjoy worshipping our God whose, whose mercy is majestic, whose majesty is merciful. Let's enjoy worshipping Christ Jesus in whom we see God's majesty and mercy so clearly. Christ is God's appointed king. Jesus, God is my salvation, our ruler and our rescuer, our king who was crowned at the cross, where majesty and mercy met to rescue us from sin and death, for eternal relationship with God under his rule and blessing. Let's pray. Father God, we thank and praise you for Jesus. We praise his majesty, the ruler over all creation who dwells among and in his people. Please help us fall in obedient worship. We thank you for his mercy as our rescuer. Please help us respond to his overflowing generosity with overflowing gratitude gladly giving our money, our time, our very selves for his service. Amen.